Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. We're here at the Hyrick House in lovely DuPont Circle with producer Panama once more. Um, my guest today is Hari Kirtan Das. He is a ERYT 500 yoga teacher and the author of In Search of the Highest Truth, Adventures in Yoga Philosophy. He's been practicing bhakti yoga and other yogic disciplines for the better part of 40 years, has lived in devotional yoga ashrams and intentional spiritual communities, worked for Fortune 500 companies and Silicon Valley startups, and brings a wide range of spiritual knowledge and life experience to his classes, workshops, and presentations. Hari Kirtan is on the faculty of numerous yoga teacher training programs and leads his own advanced yoga teacher training program here in Washington, D.C. You can learn more about Hari on his website, harikirtan.com. Welcome to the program. Chris, thanks for having me. It's a yeah. pleasure to be here. Welcome to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time now, and actually, uh, we're going to do two episodes today. So first episode is going to be about 45 minutes or an hour. Second episode is going to be 45 minutes or an hour. Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait two weeks to get to the second episode, but here's the first episode for today. Um, so I guess we start out at the beginning. Why don't we start with your name? My name, yeah. Hari Kirtan Das. Yeah. Um, it's a Sanskrit name that was given to me when I was formally initiated into my particular lineage of bhakti yoga, and that was back in 1978. Hari is a name of Krishna, which means the uh, one who gives protection uh, or guidance on the path of devotional yoga, mm -hmm. uh, one who removes obstacles on the path of devotional yoga is another way to understand it. And then kirtan means uh, glorification, that's the literal meaning. In context, it means glorification by chanting the names of the supreme person. So, so the implication here is it's not just uh, glorification in general, but specifically glorification of the supreme person or the supreme being. And in its complete form, sankirtan, san meaning complete, uh, it's communal chanting, chanting as a group, hence kirtan as we know it is call and response chanting of sacred mantras accompanied by musical instrumentation. And das simply means servant. So my name translates as the servant of the communal chanting of the holy name of the Lord, Hari, who removes all obstacles on the path of devotional yoga. That's pretty cool. It's also pretty long. Uh, <laughs> so Sans is. Sanskrit's a very compressed language. There's a lot of information in a few syllables. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I'm very glad I don't have to sign checks anymore. Uh, <laughs> it just it wouldn't fit. Too long, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so how did, you, how did you get started in this yoga, yoga mumbo-jumbo? Yoga mumbo-jumbo. Yeah. It's funny you should say that. At one of the uh, communities I lived in up in Boston... Uh, there was a guy who used to call the ashram on a regular basis, uh, and you know our primary activity was chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, mm -hmm. and he would just call up and, and uh, start chanting mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo, <laughs> you know, just kind of making fun of us. And I, I don't know why we never found out who he was, but he was known as mumbo jumbo. <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, I got started. Uh, in practicing yoga as a teenager, I was always attracted to uh, the idea of expanded consciousness and mysticism and stuff. You know, read Doctor Strange comics as a kid, wanted mm -hmm. to go off to a cave and learn how to do that kind of thing. That's right, the yogi super superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I had no trouble believing that that was totally possible, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm a child of the 60s, you know, so I was living near New York City, um, and that's where my family is from, uh, and so I w- I'm a counterculture kid, and uh, I, that's how I heard about yoga, uh, just from being in, in an environment where that was starting to become hip and you know, part of that. Were your parents into it at all? Totally not. Totally not. Yeah. My, my parents, uh, my mom was pretty cool. My dad was totally straight and, um, you know, they, they weren't really pleased with my interest in psychedelia. Mm -hmm. Did that happen before the yoga or was that a, was that kind of, well, that was kind of went around at the same time. time, yeah. Yeah. My idea of a good time as a teenager was to do Zazen while I was tripping. Right. You know, because a a wall becomes very, very interesting on LSD. (laughs) It does. (laughs) I know from personal experience. Yes. It really does. (laughs) So the two kind of went hand in hand and, uh, you know, I picked up a copy of be here now and that's when I started practicing. I just was looking at what was in the back of Mm -hmm. be here now in terms of how do you do meditation how do you do asana and such like that and so i just started practicing on my own and you know i went through a few different uh philosophical ideas you know i was raised jewish but i didn't find that um spiritually fulfilling so uh i uh as a teenager i uh, started reading herman hesse and um uh, J. Krishnamurti, mm-hmm. and uh, listening to lectures by uh, uh, Sikh teachers and such, you know, really kind of fishing around, looking around. Uh, eventually, I came upon the books of A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and at first, I dismissed them because it was an uh, exposition of a very personalistic kind of supreme being. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that uh, what I was interested in was more of an impersonal liberation kind of philosophy. But eventually, as I dug deeper into it, and friends of mine were into it, uh, I found it that actually what appeared to be uh, mythology actually had a very concrete, comprehensive philosophy behind it that... uh, put reason behind faith into the idea of that reality itself is a person and has a personality and you can have a relationship with this personality and that's when my interest in bhakti yoga uh, really started to develop and that was the path that I ended up taking seriously. So for you at the beginning it was really more about the spirituality aspect, the philosophy aspect of it and less about like the physical let's do like headstands and let's do let's twist our bodies into pretzels and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Because at, back at that time, now we're talking about the uh, you know, early to mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Yoga as we know it today just didn't exist. It was you couldn't find an you asana class. You couldn't find an asana class. Yeah, even no in New York City studios. Yeah, even in New York City, wow, it was yeah. very very rare. You know, I mean, your first people in as far as yoga was concerned was um, Swami Vishnu Devananda from the Shivananda school who mm-hmm. established a small place in uh, near in Chelsea in Manhattan. Uh, a little later on, I think Dharma Mitra finally shows up. Um, and you had the Hare Krishna temple already in New York. And yeah, so, so yoga was more associated with a spiritual philosophy and a minimal uh, 
physical practice that was just meant to set you up for meditation, as opposed to now where people come for the physical practice and then they notice the physical practice of yoga is different from working out in other ways and it starts to wake something up and uh, that wasn't awake before. And then they inquire, okay, well, what's the philosophy? What's the spiritual part? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was very different then. Yeah, I bet. Like it was sort of in the line of like, you know, if anybody had heard about yoga, it was you know the Beatles went to India and they right. went and studied in an ashram and they you know changed their lives through the devotional practices. And it, you know now it's you know okay, we look at the yoga celebrities on Instagram and it's like okay, well I'm going to go do that in a yoga studio. So it's right. It's interesting how it kind of evolves, right? Yeah, the direction uh, that people approach yoga from has really changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where did you do? Um, so where did you go to learn? I mean, you've you already talked about books and like mm-hmm. and certain teachers. Where did I mean, if you knew if you wanted to learn about yoga, where did you go? I mean, was that kind of like the the end of it, or how did you go to seek out more um, more information about it? There were sanghas that you could find um, that where people were listening to teachers whose uh, lectures had been recorded so you could listen or watch uh, video recordings or such like that. Uh, Eventually, I went to the Hare Krishna temple, and that's where I ended up staying. You know, uh, I moved into the Hare Krishna temple in Manhattan in 1977, and I stayed there for about four or five years, moved out, and when you say moved that. in, like literally, like like literally living, moved in. I was yeah. living in yeah. the ashram, and uh, that's what I was doing 24-7. Um, so, yeah, if you were really serious about the spiritual aspect of yoga, then that's what there was, and that's where you went, to someplace like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a few places like that in New York. I'm sure on the West Coast you could uh, find such places. I'm not sure where else in the country uh you know, you would even be able to find that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So do you remember, so, so, so we, can we even say that you had a first yoga class? Well, or let's do this. How about, how about, how about just tell us about your first asana? Class? Well, here's, yeah. So, yeah. so, so now you have to kind of fast forward. Right. Um, because at some point, you know, I, I discovered Jiva Mukti yoga mm-hmm. because a friend of mine was giving Bhagavad Gita classes there and he invited me to, uh, you know, come to to his class. And then uh, I started taking classes there, like asana classes. And uh, I thought, I really, really like this practice. And then I got an opportunity. uh, The Jiva Mukti uh, folks asked my partner and I to create a promotional video for them. And I said, okay, well, here's how much it'll cost. And they said, well, let's make a deal. How about we'll pay you for half of it and give you the rest in free yoga. And I thought, that's a great deal because that's a lot of yoga. Right. And I really wanted to learn <laughs> their system. So um, I immediately understood that m- my teachers had recently told me, you need to find a way to be a teacher. And I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do that. Yeah, and there weren't yoga teacher training programs back then, certainly, right? Well, I, by this point there were. Okay. But it was just really starting. And as soon as I found Jiva Mukti Yoga, and I saw the format was you chant a little bit, you talk a little yoga philosophy, you do an asana class, and you have some meditation at the end. And that's just part of the package. I thought, that's perfect. This is the training I should take because as a Jiva Mukti Yoga teacher, people will expect me to do these things. And the asana part is really a platform for me to get to the chanting and the philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it fortunately worked out. 
Mm-hmm. How did you? So did you do the Jiva Mukti training? Then? Yeah, Is that you did. Yeah, I did it up in Omega and upstate New York. And who was the leaders of those? Sharon Gannon and David Life. Yeah, so they started way back then, huh? They were early adopters. Yeah, yeah. and fortunately for me, uh, they were still present personally in their training at the time. There were other senior teachers who were uh, students of theirs who also led some of the training, mm-hmm. uh, but they were present for the whole training. They hadn't delegated it out to other people at that point. So I got to work directly with them. And then were you, and this, I guess at this point you'd already moved out of the ashram and you were kind of on your own in New York city or were like, how did you, how did you start teaching then? Well, what happened was I was, uh, you know, at a certain point I was teaching within the ashram community and then I left and tried to find my way in the material world after having taken the time that I would have gone to school, mm-hmm. was divided somewhere between uh, living in the ashram and trying my hand at a career in experimental electronic music. This is back when everything was analog. There was like no digital anything. Right. It's not the most lucrative career you to can try just, to have you can at just that say time. You were trying to make it as a DJ. That's totally <laughs> cool, Hart. It was actually there wasn't even. This is pre DJ. This this is like setting up analog synthesizers and hooking microphones into them and playing gongs and you know mm-hmm. this totally uh, you know Frippin' Eno style mm-hmm. uh, uh, electronic music. Anyway, so. You know, now I had to figure out, all right, uh, how am I going to make my way in the world? So I spent some time doing that. I moved back into the ashram in the mid-1990s for another four or five years. And then it was only after that that I went to India. One of my teachers said, your career needs to be as a teacher. That's your nature. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for others. Figure out how to become a teacher. And it's true that my career working for other companies like these Silicon Valley startups and, and, and uh, other big corporations that I work for, there was always a training component of what I was doing in each of these jobs. I was just good at getting an idea out of my head into someone else's head in a way they could understand. So my teachers understood that's my nature, that's my natural aptitude, figure out how to teach something of spiritual value to people. And so now that's a, probably around you know, 2007, and then I came back from India and, and found Jiva Mukti Yoga. And that's when I understood, oh, this is how I'm going to teach. This is what I need to learn how to do. So I have this as a platform to become a yoga teacher in the more conventional sense. Now I've got a platform for teaching what everything I learned in the ashram. Yeah. So that's how that all evolved. Excellent. So how, so tell us, because I'm really interested in this. Tell us about a day in the life of the ashram in New York City in the late 70s. So you get up at four in the morning. The, uh, you take, you're advised to take a cold shower. And in the New York uh, ashram, there was no choice because the boiler was broken. So, <laughs> Of course, in the 70s so, in New York, yes, of course. Yeah, 70s in New York, exactly. <laughs> so it's totally busted. And in the winter, that meant you were taking a shower under moving ice. Oof. It was like the coldest water I've ever experienced in my life. But you were awake. And, yeah. And yeah, you yeah. took a quick shower. Uh, yeah. you, were, you, were, you were hopping on it. Anyway, the first program called Mangala Arti is at, was at 4.30 in the morning, which is a kirtan accompaniment to worship of the deities on the altar in a very traditional uh, Vedic uh, mm-hmm. ceremony. 
So people don't know what that is. Kind so of flesh that out a little So more. I'll explain yeah, that. Yeah. So if you go to uh, uh, like a Hindu temple and you see a priest on the altar ringing a bell and offering various things to deities who are uh, up on the altar. What that is, is a ceremony of offering the creation back to the creator. So this, uh, the bell is sound, which moves through ether. And then uh, the incense is the uh, aroma of the earth being offered back. Then the uh, there's a little shell with water that's offered. Um, then a ghee lamp, uh, 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 candles made of uh, ghee and, and cotton balls. Mm -hmm. uh, then a fan. Uh, so that's your five elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether. Mm -hmm. And it's all a symbolic uh, offering of the creation, the material creation, back to the creator. Then the mind is also meditating, so it's an offering of your mind. Uh, your intelligence, figuring out how to do all this stuff, uh, is the offering of your intelligence. And because you're worshiping the personification of the supreme reality of which we are an infinitesimal part, your ego is mm. also being offered. Yeah. So these are the eight material elements, the five physical and the three metaphysical elements that make us who we are. And so that's what's going on on the altar. And the congregation, all the people living in the, in the ashram, come to the temple room and chant kirtan, call and response, chanting of sacred mantras while the ceremony is going on. So that takes about half hour. Mm -hmm. And then there's other uh, shorter rituals and recitations before we begin to chant individual meditation, which is japa as opposed to kirtan. So we all have our uh, this would uh, be this would be repeating in your own head or in your or out, or right. just softly on your lips. So, or yeah, the yeah. idea is that the sound comes out of your mouth uh, just loud enough to get to your ears. So uh, the temple room becomes something like a beehive. You know, if you <laughs> yeah, have enough people, that, if yeah. you have enough people in there, and that, uh, you 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 know, it's an individual offering now. So everybody's got their own individual style of chanting. So everyone's sitting, and you're hearing yourself chant, but you're also hearing kind of the ambient buzz of everyone else chanting, mm -hmm. uh, and it's actually a wonderful sound because you immerse yourself in both your own chanting and you're supported, surrounded by this. Uh, transcendental sound vibration coming from everyone else. Yeah, at the a same wall time. of sound yeah. is just sort of enveloping you. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a wonderful environment for meditation. And this would go on from you know around five fifteen to uh, six thirty, six forty five or so. And then there'd be another kirtan, uh, and then a class uh, on uh, the. A book called the Srimad Bhagavatam, which is also known as the Bhagavat Purana. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the uh, principal Purana for bhakti yogis who are in the uh, uh, tradition of worshiping Vishnu or Krishna. Mm -hmm. And someone would give a class. We'd do call and response chanting of the Sanskrit, which is how I learned Sanskrit. So we chant the Sanskrit from the verses and then the word-for-word -word translation. This is how I learned Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. And then we look at the fluent translation and the commentaries, and then whoever was uh, leading the class would 
share their personal realization and understanding of this verse, and then there would be discussion of this verse. And that would take us to about nine o'clock in the morning and breakfast. So you have a pretty full morning from, you know, getting up at four till about nine o'clock uh, of just really intense spiritual practice and study. So this, it's basically a very immersive kind of svadhyaya, guided mm-hmm. uh, study of the true nature of the self for the entire morning. And so that's how our morning went. Can we now we're going to get into this a little bit later. Um, did you see this at the time as um, like religion or did you see this as spirituality? Good question. <clears throat> what attracted me to this, well, I, I'll back up. What I didn't like about it when I was first exposed to it is it just seemed like religion. And it seemed like religion that didn't make sense to me. You know, when I, the first thing I hear is, all right, you're telling me that God is a little blue flute playing cowherd boy. <laughs> who likes to sneak out from his parents' house in the middle of the night and go dancing with his girlfriends. Uh, you know, I mean, it just seems just as realistic as a guy I, with a bl- flowing beard and white robes, you know? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's a little more jolly, but, yes, you know, is. but it made as much sense to me as, like, you might as well be telling me that the universe was created by a school of dolphins, right. okay? <laughs> it just, it didn't even qualify as mythology to me. I thought it was fairy tales. This is, it's nonsense. Right. Now, uh, Later, when I heard, like, well, what's the philosophical explanation that supports this preposterous idea? It started to make sense to me. I'm a person. Where does my personness come from? Uh, I'm a part of reality. Uh, is reality itself a person? The Vedanta Sutra begins with the aphorism. Atato Brahma Jigyasya Janma Yasya Yataha, which means now, like all sutras, now, mm-hmm. uh, try to understand Brahman or absolute reality. And then Brahman is defined. Brahman, uh, that from which birth, Janma, etc., that from which everything proceeds. It makes sense that you cannot give what you do not have. Therefore, if Brahman is the source of everything, then everything, including the attribute of being a person, must be present in Brahman. Mm -hmm. Well, what kind of person would that be? Would it be someone who's angry and jealous? Would it be someone who's old and cranky? Would it be uh, someone who has nothing better to do than just sit around and judge us all the time. I mean, really? Is that the best thing God can come up with to do with his time? That's fair. What would I do if I was God? Right. I'd sneak out of the house in the middle of the night and go dancing with my girlfriends. Yeah. You know, an eternally youthful, an eternally beautiful, uh, you know, just an eternally fabulous, fun person who you can have a relationship with. And I do an exercise in some of my workshops about this with the um, ontological proof for the existence of God, which is God is that being that you can't think of a being greater than. It's like, okay, well, let's create a supreme being. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if we, as a group, go through the whole exercise 
of what are the attributes of the greatest being we can think of that no being is greater than. Well, what you end up with is the concept of Krishna, which is not exactly the same thing as the concept of God in conventional Western religion. That's right. So what, it, what I finally c- concluded was that this is not just religion in the conventional sense of a religion. It's something that transcends uh, religion as as a particular faith form. Yeah, there's in other words, there was a there's a you said it already there were relationship relationship there. Whereas, kind of in the Abrahamic traditions and the Western religions, the only relationship is that you sort of obey, mm-hmm. right? So it's a one sided relationship. There's devotion and you obey, but there's no interaction. Right. And whereas this seems more like an interaction. Yes. Yeah. This is a uh, reciprocal relationship of love. Love is offered, love is received back, and it is ever increasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no limit to it. So rather than being a uh, sectarian religion, I felt like what I was involved with was a uh, non-sectarian spiritual path that presented a technology for the fulfillment of religion, which is religious experience. Right. And I came to speak about yoga uh, in the same way, because this is bhakti yoga, the yoga of expressing devotion through uh, service. Mm-hmm. Now, yoga means, among other things, union. And religion, we usually think of a religion. But actually, if you look at the etymological root of religion, it's religio in the Latin. Mm-hmm. Re, again, ligio, like a ligament or a ligature, to connect again, to bind back. So religion, as I understand it, means to heal the soul by reconnecting to the source of our being. Mm-hmm. And yoga is the same thing. So in this sense, religion and yoga are synonyms. Right. And so what I found that what I was doing was uh, spiritual yoga, which meant it wasn't a particular religion. Like I don't identify as a Hindu for example, right. whereas a lot of times we would think, well, Krishna is a Hindu god as opposed to you know some other kind of god. I don't think of it uh, like that at all. Yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned the root of the word religion because uh, like uh, many other aspects of religion, it sort of became twisted and warped over time, right? Because religion now, when we think of the term religion, we think of it as kind of monolithic um, rules and regulations and ways to... Um, behave and 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 much different than uh, reconnecting to your own spirituality. Right? Yeah, a, a, a lot of us have that experience of religion, and especially in the West here. I mean, that's you mm-hmm. know that's today why I find a lot of people you know are leaving the Catholic Church. They're leaving all these other institutions because they don't feel connected to it. Yeah, the the, the trend is definitely there. Now that doesn't it, but it's not universal. Uh, because I meet people all the time, and, and especially here in, in D.C., uh, who have a very strong sense of connection to their particular faith form. And they're a little bit of an anomaly in their uh, church community because they're doing yoga. Yeah. And one of the challenges that they often face is explaining the relationship of yoga to their 
faith form. There are two things that I find particularly gratifying as a yoga teacher. One is when someone who has had their relationship with God damaged or, or injured or broken on account of these very things, the shortcomings of religious institutions and human frailties amongst those within those institutions, you know, those things can break someone's relationship. Well, when something I've said, something I've taught from the Bhagavad Gita or another yoga wisdom text reconnects uh, them, just kind of shows them how that relationship is actually possible in a positive way. That, to me, is a very, very gratifying experience. Sure. And then when someone has a faith form, but they're not sure how yoga connects to it and how it's going to amplify their faith rather than distract from it. And I say something that makes that connection where they see how yoga is something that is a faith amplifier rather than something separate from their religion. That's also very, very gratifying. So those are the two experiences that um, when people say they have that with me, that means to me that I'm doing that's my, the my warm job. and fuzzy that's feeling the warm inside. and fuzzy yeah. feeling that makes me think all right that's you know why I'm doing this yeah and I think you know I I love the fact that yoga what I tell people is that um, yoga is a um, it's something you do right it's not um, it's not uh, something to be worshipped right mm -hmm. and so that it it is non-sectarian in other words it's a, it's a process that you do and it's something that you practice and that you can believe it you can be a muslim you can be a buddhist you can be a christian you can do all these things and yoga in no way precludes you from you know doing your own religious practice with whatever religion you you you're a part of mm -hmm. right because it's it is like you said a technology right and it's and it's about experience and learning from experience and that, you know, translates into everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a spiritual science where you have the theory, but the experiment that you do is a subjective experiment. You have to be uh, the subject of, of the experiment. Yeah. So the way I like to put it is yoga is a bridge to religious experience that does not depend on or conflict with any particular form of faith. Yeah, yeah no, that's really true. Tell us about uh, your trips to India. When was the first time you went? The first time I went to India was uh, right before I did my yoga teacher training up in Omega at, uh, with Sharon and David. Uh, it was a long time coming because here I am for so long, years and years, practicing a form of yoga that was brought from India, at least, at least on a, a terrestrial level. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I hadn't been. So the first time I went... And what year was this? This was in 2007 or eight. So you, you had the Sanskrit name. You had the years and years of experience. I mean, it was everything. And, and yet you still hadn't been right, to yeah, India. Right, yeah. 30 years goes yeah. by. I haven't been to India. Yeah. So I finally went with one of my teachers. Um, I stayed uh, in an um, area called Vrindavan, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is Krishna's hometown. It's It's about three-and-a-half-hour drive south of Delhi and about an hour and change north of the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. I went to India about seven times in that same place before I finally 
went to see the Taj Mahal, which, if you haven't seen it, by the way, is every bit as beautiful as people say it is. It, it's one of those things that it looks beautiful in pictures, and then when you see it, you realize that photography just you know, breathtaking. Really, it really can't capture it. Anyway, so um, I was there with one of my teachers for about a month, and uh, had to leave just as I felt like I was finally really getting used to the place. India is like going to another planet. It really <laughs> is. Um, it's uh, very, very vibrant. It's, it's, it, it, it's a, a sensory overload because the smells are so much more pronounced, the colors are so much more pronounced, uh, the sounds are, there's so much more of them, so, many, so, so much variety. The hard part is actually coming back. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's, for me, and other people have had this experience as well, it's harder to come back from India after you've kind of got accustomed to it than it is to go there. I mean, at first, there's culture shock when you're there. But once you get used to that and you come back here, the culture shock is even bigger. Mm -hmm. You wonder, like, where are the colors? Uh, where are... Uh, where are the water buffalo? How come uh, everything's so clean? How, everything, how come everything's so clean? How come everything's the same color? Yeah. Why isn't anyone honking? Uh, <laughs> so Where so, are the water buffalo? Yeah, right. I mean, because I kind of got used to walking down the street and having like water buffalo walking right alongside me. At first, you know, it takes a little getting used to, but after a while, it just kind of seems normal. That's right. So, um, but... You know, when you that the reason to go to India is to go to a place of pilgrimage. It's not a great place to just go on vacation. It's it's not designed for that. Uh, there are little places around India that are kind of spiritual energy centers, and when you go to one of those places, you feel it, mm -hmm. and. The reason to go there is to be in that environment and then hear from the people who stay there and live in that environment all the time and uh, hopefully assimilate some of whatever it is they've got. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for a month the first time. And then I uh, started taking people to India. And that's a lot of work. Yeah. It's it's even with someone there, I work with uh, people who really know what they're doing and know how to facilitate a, a, a spiritual pilgrimage. And because there's no way I'm going to arrange for the train ride from uh, Jaipur uh, up to um, uh, Haridwar, you know, that's like I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> it's too much for me to handle. But even with that help, it's really, really a high degree of difficulty. And I realized that um, I, if I'm going to do that again, I need to go with a group of people who I know everybody, and they all know why we're going. Mm -hmm. Because I would get groups where half of them are there for the spiritual experience, and then some are there because they just want to wander around by themselves, and some are there because they just want to go shopping. And... Yeah, that's no. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> that was rough. Yeah. Um, so I took. Uh, I've been to India about seven, seven or eight times. And, and do you go for that length of time too? Like, in, like again? Like no, no, no. Okay. The, the, when I bring people, we go for like two, two weeks, mm -hmm. and then uh, you know, extra travel day on either end because that's how much time people usually have to take off. Um, this time, I'm I'm going back to India in January to be with the same teacher that I 
went to India the first time with. And we'll be in Puri on the East Coast for a week and then back to Vrindavan for another uh, week. And there'll be a few extra days on either side. Mm -hmm. When you um, first started teaching asana practice, do you remember like where you first started? Was it here in D.C.? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was living in D.C. I was living in Adams Morgan. Mm -hmm. I was taking classes at a studio called Yoga Chai, which was right around the corner from mm -hmm. our house. Um, and Alex um, uh, ran the studio. And because he knew me, when he heard that I was going to go do the Jiva Mukti teacher training, he said, oh, that's great. I'll give you a class when you come back. And that was my first regular class. Um, uh had you been practicing at that point in yeah. studios around town? Yeah, yeah, I'd been practicing. Like what kinds of, kinds of yoga were you practicing? I mean, you were just... I was, I was practicing, uh, I was taking Jiva Mukti classes at Flow. At Flow, yeah. Uh, Jill Abelson was still here at the time. Um, Corey Bryant uh, had uh, recently, like the year before, he had done the Jiva Mukti training. Mm -hmm. um, and I was taking a variety of other classes with some other, other teachers too, but um, I was also taking uh, an Iyengar class with um, Terence Olivieri, I think is uh, his last name. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really hearing a lot of the micromanagement of alignment. Yeah. Now, Jiva Mukti doesn't really emphasize that. Jiva Mukti emphasizes, from an asana standpoint, uh, movement driven by breath. Mm -hmm. And the class that I started teaching at Yoga Chai was the class right after Terence's class. So I would come take his Iyengar class and then teach my Jiva Mukti class. And the result of that was that I developed a way of cueing movement to breath that had a lot more alignment cues kind of mm -hmm. integrated into them than you would normally hear from a Jiva Mukti teacher. And that became part of my style uh, that if, if I'm known for something in a flowing vinyasa asana practice, mm -hmm. it's the specificity of the alignment cues that are matched to each inhale and exhale while you hold the pose. And that's what I got from Terence. That's what I got from doing Iyengar classes. Yeah. And, and that's how I integrated into my teaching style. And did you ever, and did you, how many... Because this tends to this tends to happen. You pick up one class, then you're like, "Oh, I've got you know, I've got an opportunity to do another class." And you pick up another class, and right. then all of a sudden, you're teaching 17 classes a week. You're like, "How did I get here?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I never quite got up to that number, and I wonder, like, oh, God bless those teachers. How do they maintain uh, a schedule like that? We're all That's, fucking nuts. It's 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 really hard. I can't imagine doing that myself. I've never taught that many classes. Um, I started teaching at Yoga Chai. And I was also taking classes at Flow. And uh, one of the teachers that I was friends with asked me if I wanted to sub her class at Flow. And I was like, yeah, of course, I would love to. So what I didn't know is that she didn't actually uh, tell anyone that she was subbing her class mm -hmm. and that you were supposed to be on a sub list in order to sub the class. I, so I wasn't on the sub list and nobody knew she wasn't showing up. So I show up. And I tell the manager, uh, I'm teaching so-and-so's class. And he said, no, you're not. You're not on the sub list. And he knew I you know, was teaching. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, look, I'm here, and she's not showing up. What do you want to do? 
That's right. So, so he said, and dropped what he was doing and came in to take my class so that that would be my audition. Fortunately, I passed the audition. Right. I got off the sub list. <laughs> so, now, so for anyone who's like taking a 200 hour teacher training, um, I, that's not the recommended way to get on the sub list. Now, I'm not advocating for this. Now, it's true that it's always easier to get forgiveness than permission, but, you know, that's. Not you you really better be my, good. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to do that, you really better be confident <laughs> you better in be your good. ability to teach. <laughs> um, anyway, so that worked out. And then I started um, teaching at Flow. And yeah, that became uh, teaching at uh, Pure Prana down in Alexandria. I uh, taught at uh, you know, a few, few other different studios mm-hmm. um, around town. And then uh, I lucked out um, as far as starting to do teacher trainings go. Um, Faith Hunter had someone lined up to do uh, kirtan chanting Sanskrit and they didn't show up and a friend of mine uh, Rob Belfast was was in her teacher training and she was like "Uh, what do I do and Rob said call Hari Kirtan He he can do this so she contacted me. I showed up, saved the day, and I've had that gig ever since. You know, mm-hmm. it was kind of like a Wally Pip moment where, yeah. like, now I'm playing first base. Yeah. And uh, so I'm very grateful to Faith for, first of all, giving me a, a shot, you know, without having taken me for a test drive beforehand. She just, uh, you know, gave me an opportunity. And I've been part of her 200 and 300 hour yoga teacher training program ever since yeah and that was the first program where i got my break doing yoga teacher training and i started to do other uh got invitations to do other teacher trainings um when you uh when you are teaching because you do come mostly from a background of right the spiritual side um how do you weave that into your class do you start class with a dharma talk do you yes do you do yeah I do, and I uh, teach. I have a workshop for yoga teachers called Integrating Yoga Philosophy into Your Classes and Workshops. And uh, how to give a great Dharma talk is part of that. And, you know, I have a little system. Because at first, when I, when I started giving the Dharma talks, I'm sitting at Yoga Chai, and the seat of the teacher has a clock right over, the, over my head. And, you know, I come from a tradition now where someone gives a class on the advanced yoga wisdom text for like 45 minutes to an hour. And I've got to figure out how to shave this down. Sound (laughs) bites. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, to speak in sound bites. And so I would be wah, 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 like the Peanuts teacher. Mm -hmm. And I could tell I was going too long because people would start to look at the clock over my head. I could see that like, all right, I'm losing them. I got to shut up and we got to start moving. Um, So I realized that five minutes tops and it has to feel like a conversation not like a lecture so i would start the dharma talk in a very conversational way before i would like even sit down uh for uh you know to take the seat of the teacher so that people would just think i'm talking to them they didn't know that i'd actually already started my dharma talk yeah class had started right so 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 the first thing was be really subtle about it and make it just really conversational and you know talk about something that happened to me you know some experience that i had that was relatable something that you know you could also have had that same experience and then i looked at that experience through the lens of such and such 
piece of yoga wisdom from this particular sutra in the yoga sutras or this verse from the Bhagavad Gita or something. And here's how it transformed the experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I looked, I had a whole different way of uh, experiencing this now. And anyone can have this kind of experience when we look through this lens. So, you know, when we get into our practice today, think of your practice as a way to connect this dot to that dot in this way. Mm -hmm. That's my Dharma talk. And you can do that in less than five minutes. And nobody looks at the clock because you just engage them in, you know, kind of a quick conversation. That's right, yeah. And so that's how I begin every class, is uh, I speak a little bit about a, a little tidbit of how you look at life through the lens of yoga wisdom. Mm -hmm. Then we chant, then we get moving. And during the course of the class, then I will look for uh, little philosophy sound bites to come back to that theme so that I can say something within the span of five breaths on this side and five breaths on that side uh, that's, you know, just a little quick snippet of something. Or I'll, I'll give a moment in a resting pose and suggest a kind of reflection. Mm -hmm. You know, here's, here's a moment where we're going to be in thunderbolt pose or hero pose or child pose or something. And then I'll suggest uh, an introspective way to re-engage with that same theme. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. it. I do, uh, I do the same thing at the beginning of class, although I put them in child's pose at the beginning of class every time. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the reason of that is so that they don't look at the clock. Yeah, that's, that's a good trick. Yeah, teacher's, <laughs> teacher's tricks, you know. Exactly, yeah. uh, you know, find ways for them I, not to be able to see the clock. Yeah, I, like, I wish I could just rip the fucking clock off the wall. Like, see, I, it just is just like... But then here's the thing. Like, I, that annoys me, but then I realize, okay, here's a teaching moment because I can like, tell them. I can actually, if, if someone looks at the clock, I can make a point about it and be like, okay, you're looking at the clock. Uh, right. You think you don't have enough time, but uh, you really have a lot more time than you think you do. Like mm -hmm. time is time remains the same. Your relationship to it changes. So sometimes you think you have too much time. Sometimes you think you don't have enough time. But when you realize time is the same all the time, you can relax a little bit. Right. That you have all the time in the world. Yeah, you the, always do. The, the, the experience <laughs> of time is very elastic. You know, yeah. here I am talking to you. It seems like you're just wondering when I'm going to shut up. Okay, now let's take pigeon pose. Same so, amount of time. Exactly. Right? Seems a little different, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> when yeah. is you know it's a different kind of when is this going to be over? Or I always like to say like I'll, I'll put somebody in, I'll put the class in like a, a standing posture, like a standing split or something. Mm -hmm. I'll keep them there for like a minute, and I, you know, I'll see people shaking and wobbling and getting frustrated, and I'm like, listen, you just sat in a chair for eight hours. All I did was ask you to stand on one leg for sixty for, seconds. For, yeah, a minute. Sixty <laughs> seconds, and you're getting frustrated with me, right? After you just did that to your back for eight hours. Yeah, like no, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's also a fun thing to do in in meditation workshops. You uh, do a meditation, like a chanting meditation, or uh, you know, some form some form of uh, meditation, and then after a little post exercise discussion, you ask. All right, how much time went by while you were doing that? And it, everyone is like two minutes, eight minutes, six yeah. minutes. I have no idea how many minutes. It seemed like forever. It seemed like it went by in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's, a, that's it, exactly right. Yeah. It, it really uh, shows you the elasticity of the experience of time, even though time just keeps on 
ticking, ticking, ticking. Uh, man, it does. And I, for me, every minute of meditation is excruciating. But uh, that's my own <laughs> that's my own problem with it. And why I need to do more of it. Yeah, um, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. Have you done uh, speaking meditation? Have you done? Would you like? Um, have you done uh, vipassana? Have you done like what kind of meditation practice do you have? My meditation practice is a mantra meditation it's practice. Mantra, yeah. um, I've done vipassana meditation. I've done a variety of different kinds of meditation. I felt it was important for me to do that because if I'm going to teach uh, meditation workshops, I need it to be comparative. Yeah. Uh, I need to have some experience of my own to rely on uh, in order to guide people through the different kinds of meditational experiences that there are and different techniques of meditation. It's, it's really the same thing with philosophy. My philosophy workshops are exercises in comparative philosophy. You have to, uh, I think, be able to compare yoga philosophy to other ways of thinking so that you have some basis for evaluation. Um, so... Um, Vipassana meditation and that kind of meditation for me is an exercise in watching the mind do its thing, which is really different from Patanjali's system of meditation in yoga, where you have concentration, meditation, and samadhi, or um, spontaneous absorption in an object of meditation. Mm -hmm. And most people who practice yoga would rather do a kind of Buddhist meditation where you just kind of watch the mind do its thing as opposed to try to control the mind mm -hmm. because controlling the mind is really hard and there's a lot of work involved. So mm -hmm. that's concentration is when you have an object of meditation like a mantra or something like that and every time the mind runs away, which is like every two seconds, you go and you bring it back, bring it back and then yeah. it runs away and you go and bring it back and then it runs away and you go and bring it back and over and over and over again, like chasing a two-year-old child who's having a tantrum because it doesn't mm -hmm. want to eat its broccoli or something. Um, and that's really difficult. But that's the first stage of meditation in the Vedic yogic in system yogas, yeah, as exactly. opposed to the Buddhist way of doing this, mm -hmm. which is really more about psychology. And then meditation is when, by the strength of your effort, you can keep your mind in one place. Right. And then samadhi is when your mind actually kind of digs on the object of meditation, develops a taste for it, so much so that it's so absorbed in it that you can let go and it just effortlessly stays there. But to get to that point is a lot of work. And yeah. that's the great challenge of yogic meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. It's... Um, I, you know, I have a, you know, I have, I do have some, um, uh, knowledge of meditation. I try as much as I possibly can. I, um, haven't done the Vipassana yet. I've tried the, the Vedic type meditation. That's mm -hmm. the, that's the sort of meditation I practice, which is to bring it back and bring it back and right. bring it back. Um, and I find it to be incredibly infuriating. And yet at the same time, if you actually like just stop and do it and it does, um, it does uh, calm you down after a while. Mm -hmm. It does work, yeah. Uh, because it's only you have to get through it. This is why I always tell people: your your mind is sort of uh, your your di distraction is a an addiction, mm -hmm. and like when you stop drugs or alcohol, whatever you're addicted to, you go through withdrawal symptoms. And so that frustration you feel when you first start meditating, that's the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And if you get through the withdrawal symptoms, you, you'll start to find it. But you got to do through, you got to do with the withdrawal yeah, every single time. There's right? no way to get around it. Yeah. You have to go through it. And this is like the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna wants to get around the battle. He wants to find a way to avoid this and everyone lives happily ever after. And Krishna says, no, uh, you have to go through it. So, you know, 
if you want to stop picking up your iPhone every three seconds, you have to actually go through mm-hmm. that impulse uh, to make sure you haven't missed anything, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, whatever your addiction is, that's that's the modern addiction is, you know, our digital devices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, there's, uh, you just have to go through it. And, but you can get into a flow, you know, that you, you, if you just work on it, work through that, and then, some days it's easier than others, yeah. you know, like, and some days it's really easy, some days it's really hard. And yeah, some mornings I can just sit down yeah. and, you know, it's just kind of right there. I can just ease right into it. And there are some mornings where, you know, I'm just chasing my mind all over the room to try and bring it back. Mm-hmm. And the discipline of doing it when it's easy, doing it when it's hard, doing it every day, that's the really uh, key thing, I think, is not that you go on a retreat and go do an immersive meditation and then come back to your life and do what you've always done. But even a little bit of practice steadily on a regular basis is really going to have a cumulative effect um, that will enable you to develop a steady practice that really benefits you as opposed to, you know, doing a lot, then doing nothing, and then doing a little bit, then doing nothing, and then doing a lot, and then Mm -hmm. doing nothing for a really long time. You know, like if, if it's not steady then it's not going to accumulate into uh something that's really beneficial Mm -hmm. yeah and for those of you who uh are uh, have a hard time with meditation out there i have a secret for you what's that so my i'm a big believer in yin yoga Mm -hmm. i really like yin yoga um the stretching part of it is great too um but for me the reason why i practice yin and i also i practice a lot of foam rolling is because uh when i can get uh, a sensation and i can focus on that sensation and i can feel my mind start to drift and go okay what am i going to do tomorrow i'm going to bring it back to this bring it back to the sensation bring it back to the sensation every time and then i get to a point where 45 minutes later you know, I'm with the sensation and I'm completely relaxed because I'm just with that sensation. Mm-hmm. And so if you need something external to kind of help you out, that that to me helps me when I do that. When I take, I just take a strap, I put it on the bottom of my foot. I know I'm going to stretch my hamstring for five minutes, but I just, I feel the sensation. Mm-hmm. I breathe slowly and I stay with it. And that's a great way to, to teach yin also is that, you know, I try to, to encourage people who do uh, yin practice with me that wherever your body is talking to you, you go hang out in that place, yeah, you know, exactly. and just hang out there. And yeah, that way you get used to an object of meditation. You know, the object of meditation is uh, that sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then afterwards, seated meditation, I begin people uh, who are just getting started with meditation to just watch your body sit and breathe. And that's usually the meditation at the end of all of my classes is just for a few moments. That's just what I was going to ask you. It usually end like with some sort of like meditation or some yeah, sort I of do. mindfulness trick. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the mantra part comes at the beginning, you know, there's the Dharma talk and then I bring my harmonium to my classes and we do a little call and response chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. And then the uh, silent meditation uh, is at the end. And I usually do it before Shavasana mm-hmm. rather than after. And the reason is because, first of all, I think you should do meditation before you die. Right. <laughs> like, if you wait till after, hard, it yeah. may be, like, too late. <laughs> um, so, uh, usually, sometimes I'll do it after because people are a little more relaxed and have an easier time doing the meditation after Shavasana. But also, once you come out of Shavasana, it's like, show's over. You know, people are ready to go. And if you try to do meditation after Shavasana, it's 
you know, I think in my experience, a lot of people are like, wait a minute, we're done. I, I got, you know, time to go. So I, I do um, finishing poses, and then I ask everyone to come to their comfortable seated position. And for just a few moments, you know, take a deep inhale, deep exhale, let your breath settle into its natural rhythm. And for a few moments, be still and just watch your body as it sits and breathes. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I will add the instruction. If you notice your mind, steal your attention away. Use that as an opportunity to remember that you're not the mind that stole your attention. You're not the body that is sitting there breathing. You are the person who is conscious of the movements of the mind and the body. Mm -hmm. And usually it's just two minutes. Now, it probably seems like a lot longer than that for anybody who's doing the practice, but it's, it's just two minutes. And then Shavasana. Yeah, that's a great way to introduce meditation, right? If you can just do it for two minutes, why not do it for four minutes? If you can yeah. do it for four minutes, why not do it for six minutes? Just right. see what happens, right? Yeah, you gradually work it up. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like a good place to stop for right now. Okay. Um, we're going to come back, and uh, we're going to give you a second episode here. Um, but uh, for now, you've been listening to the DC Yoga podcast. My um, post to, for this first episode has been Hari Kirtandas, and we're going to be back uh, next week. So stick around and uh, get ready for that episode. Take care, everybody.